Today, we continue our sermon series, Wholehearted Faith in a Divided World. Our scripture lesson comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel according to Matthew. Listen for Jesus' words of challenge and hope from Matthew 5, beginning at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Hoot, hoot. I look up. I can't find it. It continues. Hoot, hoot. I can never find the owls in this neighborhood, even when I can hear them, because they always hide in the branches of the thick fir trees. But it continues this night, hoo, hoo, and I look up, and there it is, right above where you and I are at this moment. At the top of the bell tower, where there are four spires, it is perched there on one of the spires, calling out, across the Ward Parkway traffic that's going by about nine o'clock at night as the last few of us are leaving the building after board meeting. You can see the outline of the owl's wings. You can see the owl turning its head back and forth. I loved that I could finally see the owl. And the reason I could see it is because of the lights on this building. Inside of the tower, there are lights that were installed during the last renovation. There are lights that go across the facade of the building. There's a different set of lights that illumine the sidewalks on our campus. And then there are those gorgeous front porch lights that I think went up in the 1920s. And when all of the lights are working and on, this campus just shimmers when you drive past it at night. Sometimes, because I live near the church, if I'm going out at night to run an errand or to go to dinner and I drive past the church and I notice that one section of the lights is out, it bothers me. And so I pick up my cell phone. I'm not driving, my husband's driving. I pick up my cell phone and I text Silas, who's in charge of our building, and I say, Silas, some of the lights are out. It just bothers me to think that someone would drive past the church at night and not see it completely illuminated because for me, the lights on the church are more than aesthetic beauty. When the church is illuminated, it becomes a radiant sign of hope for every single passing car. But imagine if you and I lived in that part of human history, which is most of human history, where there were no electric lights. Imagine if the only way that you could see your child's face at night was to take a candle and hold it up. Or imagine if the only way you could read the scrolls at night would be to light a lamp and hold that oil lamp over the scroll. If starlight and moonlight and bonfire and torches were the only way to shed light on anything after the sunset, and it was into this kind of world where darkness was pervasive, 
that Jesus preached, you are the light of the world. Jesus' friends, the ones who heard him preach those words, they had all stood on the outskirts of Jerusalem and seen in the distance the holy city where the torches were placed along the city walls, where the menorahs inside the temple had been lit, and they could see the glow from the houses in the city. That's what they pictured when Jesus said that a city built on a hill can never be hid. And these people who heard Jesus preach about the light, they had spent their whole lives growing up in homes where dad unrolled the scroll and lit the lamp as he read the Torah on Friday night, and mom lit the candles on the dinner table so that they could see what they were eating. And that's what they pictured when they heard Jesus say, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but puts it on the lampstand so it gives light to the entire house. And for those ancients, light was more than a practical, functional experience. The first words that the God of all creation ever spoke, let there be light. And there was morning and there was evening the first day. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, one of the gospel writers told the story of Jesus' birth, not with a manger and with donkeys, but rather like this. What came into being was life, and the life was the light of the world. And when the people of God experienced political upheaval and wars and discord and displacement, and when they themselves became refugees, they heard the prophets speak to them saying, you will be a light to the nations. And so for the people of God, light was essential, but light was more than practical. It was the way in which they knew this God that they worshiped was really present, really real. A friend of mine taught Sunday school in her church for almost 20 years. She particularly loved teaching the third graders because that's when they started reading the Bible themselves and could ask hard questions of her. And she told me about how they called the Sunday school in her church the lighthouse. The whole Sunday school wing was called the lighthouse because they wanted the children to know that God would always be their lighthouse, would always be there for them as a light that they could find in any storm. And they wanted to teach the children that they too could become a light for others. And I think that's a fabulous lesson for our children. Who cares if our children know who the Jebusites are or what era Hezekiah lived in? But if they know that God is light and they can radiate the light, that seems like a pretty good Sunday school. My own grandson, Jacob, will turn nine in just a few weeks. But autism has limited his ability to use language. He's a boy of few words. He knows the essential words, mom, Dad, Cheetos, train, but mostly to communicate, Jacob will come and get your hand and drag you into the next room and point to what he wants. And this makes it 
terribly difficult for those of us who love Jacob to know what it is that he's thinking or what it is that he's feeling. And we know from reading the literature that children with autism struggle sometimes to make emotional connections with friends, with their siblings, even with their parents. A few weeks ago, Jacob was at his school. He was in the hallway when the teacher who delivers the, the uh, milk to the classrooms was doing her milk duty. And so he happened to notice her and he saw that as she took the crates of milk around that she was weeping and Jacob began to cry in empathy with her. That is light, that is love, that is something of the human spirit, of the Holy Spirit shining in places that words do not go. Each week, you are the light of the world. You see, when Jesus says you, he doesn't mean you, Shirley, you, Diane, you, Dave. Jesus says you, meaning y'all. And I have some good fellow Texans here with me today who can testify to this truth. In Greek, when Jesus says you, the you is plural. Jesus is saying that all of y'all, <laughs> you, tutor, dozens of children at Hartman Elementary every week. As a congregation, you do that. You feed hungry families in Kansas City every week through Micah, through Crosslines, making taco salads, serving chicken tetrazzini, making cookies and cupcakes. Each month, you feed hundreds. You, as a congregation, Go out into the world. You serve on not-for-profit boards. You make ethical choices in the courtroom. You tenderly and compassionately tend to patients in the emergency room, in the operating room, in the recovery room. You are the light. But this week, I had to stop and remember that there's a good reason why Jesus said, don't put your light under a bushel. Because there are those times when all of us want to hide our light under a bushel so that no one can see God's light. Congregations do it. Churches do it. Groups do it. Individuals do it. Sometimes we do not want to be seen. We do not want to shine. I heard a story a week ago about a woman living in a kibbutz near the border with Gaza. She had been living there for some time, and on the day of the invasion, she was kidnapped and taken hostage by Hamas. Her neighbor said that she was such a loving and kind woman that every week this woman living in the kibbutz drove out of the kibbutz and went to the border crossing with Gaza and loaded children into her car from Gaza and drove them to the hospital for dialysis. So loving, so kind, a woman who spent her life volunteering to create harmony and healing, and now she has been taken hostage. Sometimes we are afraid to get involved because we know that doing the good that is ours to do 
can be risky. I read a sermon this week that was preached in 1936 in Berlin, Germany. The preacher of this sermon was a man named Martin Niemöller, a man who just a short time before preaching this sermon had stood face to face with Adolf Hitler and confronted him asking for religious freedom for all people. I don't know if you remember the name Martin Niemöller. He was the one you've probably heard quoted who said, first they came for the communist and I was not a communist so I did not speak up. And then they came for the Jews and I was not a Jew so I did not speak up. And then they came for the Catholics and I was a Protestant so I did not speak up. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak. Niemöller said that, and he actually spoke here at our church. But this sermon that I read of Martin Niemöller's this week was a sermon that I had never read before. It was called, Christians Must Be a Light to the World. And before he even got into talking about what that means, he said something that was absolutely chilling. He said, before I start, I'm going to ask for your prayers today for these 72 church members and church leaders who have been forbidden to speak, evicted, or recently arrested by the Nazi authorities. And then he spent five minutes reading their names aloud. He lifts these people up, ordinary church members, ordinary pastors, Men and women, young and old, those who dared to let God's light shine in them. Niemöller says, we are God's wick. And God will use our lives as wicks to shine God's justice and love and truth. But if we refuse to be the wick, God will find someone else. Suddenly, being a light doesn't seem like it's always that easy. In this divided world in which you and I live, we are sometimes reluctant, if not downright afraid, to let God's transcendent love shine through our fragile lives. It just isn't always easy. A few weeks ago here in the sanctuary, we hosted the concert called Considering Matthew Shepherd. It was a powerful concert. I know many of you were there. The concert recalled how 25 years ago, a 21-year-old college student named Matthew Shepard was murdered simply because he was gay. Those who beat him left him on a fence post in rural Wyoming, and his body hung there on the fence post until he was found almost two full days later by a cyclist. And the part of that musical retelling of his story, the part that captured my heart the most, was when the character playing Matthew Shepard's father stood here at this pulpit and spoke the words that Matthew's father spoke in the courtroom on the day that those who took Matthew Shepard's life were sentenced to prison. The father said, you left him there all by himself, but he wasn't alone. There were his lifelong friends with him. First, he had the beautiful night sky with the same stars and moon that we used to look at through the telescope. 
then he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him one more time, one more cool, wonderful autumn day in Wyoming, his last day alive in Wyoming, his last day alive in a state that he always loved calling home. And though, and through it all, he was breathing in for the last time the smell of the Wyoming sagebrush and the scent of pine trees from the snowy range. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend with him. One he grew to know through his time in Sunday school and as an acolyte at St. Mark's Church in Casper, as well as through his visits to St. Matthew in Laramie. I feel better, said the father, knowing my son was not alone. This father's complete faith in God's shining light of holy love surfaced at the worst moment a parent could possibly know, and this moment shook me to my core. This little light of mine is not always so easy to shine, but it is not at the end of the day our choice. It is simply the way our God works. In recent weeks, the church's renovations and the church's construction has progressed, and they have arrived at the stage where the electricians are done working behind the walls, doing all that stuff that needed to be done, and now they're working to, to make it look beautiful, and they've been installing lights here in the sanctuary, in the parlor, in the hallways, and often at the end of the day when the electricians and the contractors go home, they are kind of at an odd stopping point where the lights have been installed, but they haven't yet installed the switches. And so the last one out of here at night cannot turn out all the lights, as is our custom. So you could drive by here at 11 o'clock at night or at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you would see all the lights in the parlor on or all the lights in the sanctuary on or all the lights in the balcony on. And when this first started happening, it bothered me because no one wants to waste electricity and it looked like we were careless. And then I realized in just a few days, all the switches would be installed. And I really liked the message I was getting every time I drove by and saw the lights on inside the church after we had locked and gone home. I love thinking that inside this community of faith, a light always burns. It's stuck in the on position. And even if we wanted to hide it, we couldn't, because with God, that light cannot be extinguished. <laughs>